Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the day now.tv with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March 24th. And once again, unfortunately, America has catastrophic, tragic news, uh, terror in a Boulder supermarket, a uh, number of innocent people shot down for no clear reason. And this, of course, came uh, 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 a few days, a little, more, a little less than a week after the killings in Atlanta, where eight other people were shot dead, eight innocent people. Uh, one of the things about both of these, uh, both of these mass killings, is that both killers, both murderers, were caught, and they will get a trial by jury, for better or worse. They'll no doubt be found guilty, but um, a number of their peers will judge them. Um, we take trial by jury, I think, for granted these days in the United States. Some people see it perhaps as the foundations of liberty. Most of you won't know when the first trial by jury happened. And uh, I'm thrilled today to have the writer of a new book, Toby Pearl, a uh, historical book, Terror to the Wicked, a, a book about America's first trial by jury. Uh, Toby, these are dark days again in America, given the mass murders that are happening. Why should we remember this first trial? Why did you write this book? And why is it such an important lesson for democracy and freedom? Thank you, Andrew. Thank, thank you for having me. And um, thank you for highlighting this, um, another dark page in this history of mass violence in our country. Um, my thoughts are with everyone who has suffered from this loss directly. And of course, as a country, it's a heartbreak for every everyone who's here. Um, I certainly um, am in the group of thinkers who sees a jury trial as a safeguard against injustice, as a pathway toward protecting our liberties. And absolutely in the case of anyone who's going to um, stand up in trial for their crimes. They're entitled to that right. And uh, I think you're absolutely right that it's a right that many of us as Americans take for granted. When we kind of rewind and look backwards at our history, um, often in history class in school, we kind of pause around the revolution and look at why certain rights were enshrined during that period. Um, but if we keep looking back even further into our history and we look at the settlers who came um, leaving England behind, and we delve a little deeper into the kind of persecution that they faced for their personal beliefs, their religious beliefs, torture that they faced. We can see that at the end of the day, if you are someone who had no other right and you were facing tyranny, uh, a single person who was empowered to oppress you, your last line of defense against being sent away um, to a dungeon for life, um, enduring physical torture, being separated from your family. The last line of defense against that kind of tyranny is going to be a jury of your peers. It's going to be 12 people from your community who at the end of the day 
you might pray will stand up in your defense and look at the evidence and not be cowed down before a tyrant. And if right. So, uh, Toby, your, your, your book is less about law. It's more of a historical story in many ways. Um, I wouldn't say it's fiction, but it's a, it's, it's a creative form of non-friction because a lot of the the sources we simply don't have. So you make a lot of assumptions. It's an extremely readable book. And of course, it goes back, and let's go to the beginning of, of the book, Plymouth Colony, July 1638. Describe what that was like uh, almost 500 years ago in uh, northern New England. Sure. Um, first, I do describe uh, the form of writing that I used as narrative nonfiction. And it's meant to be a readable, accessible book. Um, there are academic books on um, the period and on issues of justice. Um, but this is meant to be a book that anyone, even a teenage high school student, might be able to pick up and learn a little bit about history. Yeah, that, that's actually one of the reasons I like the book. Um, you had a couple of reviews by professional historians who I thought were rather pissy in terms of, well, how does she know all this stuff is true? It doesn't really matter. No one reads academic historians. They're irrelevant. Whereas a book like yours, which is an attempt to, to popularize an important moment in history, I think is much more valuable. I, I appreciate that. And, and likewise, I appreciate our academic scholars who are kind of in the trenches of the archives day in and day out for their important work. But but yes, my intent was um, different from that of a scholar. It was to create something accessible. And um, you asked about, um, well, one other last comment, just that um, I, I did get my, my hands dirty in the archives too. And I really tried to tie each and every page of the book to primary archival sources because- And I think you did that. So let's go back, um, let's go back, Toby, to, the Plymouth Colony of, of 1620. Tell me what it was like. Sure. Uh, the first year, uh, settlers on the Mayflower arrived. Um, half of them died during the winter. So you had um, a few people who, um, it's kind of interesting to think about as we're now in a pandemic, um, almost everyone got sick, um, half died. Two people did not get sick at all. Um, and those two people um, helped care for all the ill. Um, who were among the settlers through that first hard winter, which was an especially cold, frigid, difficult winter. And there were lots of children who remained healthy. So it's a little bit similar to kind of what we're going through in very different um, circumstance. But um, you, you can imagine the scenario, um, incredibly hard times. And these settlers were ultimately deeply assisted by the gracious help of the Wampanoag people who came to their aid, who taught them how to fertilize the soil with uh, local fish, how to catch the local fish, how to grow corn that could not grow without the fertilized soil, on and on. Um, and they were able to survive. But it was a hand-to-mouth survival existence. And the people who were there initially were very much there to escape persecution and hoping for a better way of life with some level of liberty uh, while still pledging allegiance in the Mayflower Compact that they signed onto before stepping onto the soil in um, present-day Plymouth. But they hoped for some measure of freedom to practice their beliefs. I try and shed very bright light on the deep 
dark irony that the very beliefs and freedoms and rights that they cherished and sought, that they undermined, that they were undermining them as they prohibited others from accessing those lives and as they committed atrocities against indigenous peoples who were there. Um, well, not everyone. Let, let, let's talk about some of the characters. You you introduce us to somebody called Peach, a uh, young man. You say he represented a dying breed. He was essentially a, a colonial thug, wasn't he? And he was the, the central character in the, the murder that resulted in this trial by jury. Tell me about this Peach character. Absolutely. Um, so the murder takes place in 1638. So we're 18 years into the settlement. And Plymouth Colony is largely dependent on indentured servants for their labor force. These are mostly men, occasionally women, um, children who come largely from England, sometimes Ireland, as was the case for Arthur Peach, who agreed in contract, written contract, to serve for a number of years, usually seven, but it could be extended for infractions on the part of the indentured servant. And these largely men, occasionally women, um, agreed to work. Uh, they were not paid. Initially, they were promised land, um, but that kind of fizzled out as the years went on and land became more in demand and valuable. And they, their conditions were were brutal and um, they had room and board. They sometimes suffered torture themselves. Um, so it was a group of four indentured servants who escaped Plymouth Colony during the during the night. Their ringleader was Arthur Peach, um, who was working in the Winslow home. Um, Edward Winslow was a former governor and um, Arthur Peach slipped away from the house during the night. Indentured servants did not have that level of freedom to come and go as they pleased. So this was already kind of considered a great crime. And he and his companions took a trail through the woods heading south toward present day Rhode Island. And they intended to continue on farther south. But before they got very far, as they approached present day Providence, Rhode Island, they set up camp overnight. And at this point, they're kind of lost, hungry, um, not well provisioned, and they spot who will ultimately become their murder victim, a man named Pinoan Yanquis, a Nipmuc um, indigenous trader who was on a trading mission for the Narragansett, who's trading beaver pelts. And um, they spot him, but there's no interaction. And during that night, it's recorded that Arthur Peach whispered to his companions, I'm, I'm going to take um, from that man what he has. I'm going to kill him. And indeed, when Pinamon Yanquis comes back on the trail the next day after his trade. Um, yeah, Peach, he, you describe Peach um, as a, um, maybe not quite a, a neo-Nazi, but certainly a, a young, poor white boy who has a lot in common with the kind of violent, radical right-wing agitators who perhaps arrived in Washington, D.C. at the beginning of the year. Um, was he a racist? Was he a, a colonist? Did he just hate everyone? Was he angry? I know that he was very resentful about his status. Andrew, I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, to look at it, and it's interesting to compare it to what we're seeing unfold today. Um, you're seeing someone who was disenchanted, was angry about his personal circumstances, um, very much 
at odds with leadership around him and someone who wanted to undo the system he found himself in. And you ask if he was a racist and certainly the few words we have recorded from him were from shortly after the attack. And one of his companions tried to stop him in the middle of this violent um, attack with a dagger. And um, his response was, hang it rogue, I've, I've killed many, and um, referencing indigenous people. And indeed he was a soldier in the Pequot War, which um, was an act of genocide. Um, the Mystic Port battle was a, um, you know, I, I think it's widely considered that our civil war battles, Antietam, yeah. no. have the highest bloodshed. But when you certainly look at the Mystic Port battle, I think um, the massacre that happened there would absolutely um, so I'm yeah. curious, um, uh, Toby, uh, there was a piece in terms of uh, the massacres in Colorado and, and, and Georgia in the New York Times today. Why does the U.S. have so many mass shootings? And they answer their own question, of course, always rhetorical in the New York Times. Research is clear. Guns, well, certainly guns are very important. But the story you tell, this story of uh, Peach and, and these other thugs and their killing of an innocent tribesperson, a young boy, um, speaks of the foundational violence of this country, doesn't it? It's a very important question. Um, you know, I've, I've been reading and, and seeing um, some essays out there about um, and I, I wish I could um, provide the name of um, this one essay I'm, I'm thinking of, um, but about our, our history. And I think as a lot of people might agree, the more we study our history in this country, the more we look at the violence and the structural racism, and the more we can see how entrenched it is, how we are exactly where we are at this moment in time, how it's not much of a surprise, it's more hanging a light on the tremendous amount of work that needs to be done to look back at where we've come and why we're exactly where we are. And if you're someone who studies our history, the events of the day are no surprise, the contents of my book are no surprise, um, but I do think sometimes our history teachers do a superb job of trying to draw children into important facts and a timeline of history. But at the end of the day, when you're looking at American history, the, the takeaway has to pull our students into the knowledge that there are deep, dark challenges that are yet to be overcome and they can't be overcome until they're studied. Yeah, Toby, um, uh, earlier this week, we had your fellow historian, Lawrence Bergreen on the show. His new book, In Search of a Kingdom, is about essentially Francis Drake's uh, voyage around the world, second man to travel around, to sail around the world, and his relationship with, with Elizabeth I. And I asked, um, I asked Lawrence what drove, I don't mean literally, it was the wind, of course, that drove uh, Drake, but what drove Drake? What, what made him? Such a brave man, and 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 I was wondering whether it was land. I uh, and and here's uh, Lawrence's. Yes. Was land in the 16th century? Uh, Lawrence thought in symbolic terms, in genealogical terms, in 
aristocratic terms. People didn't think of land in a, in a capitalist sense. Um, yeah, I think you're right about that. And it's I don't really know how Drake thought of land, but I do know that he seemed to have very little interest in it. For example, uh, not long after Elizabeth uh, gave him Buckland Abbey and he remarried and he lived there with his uh, highborn second wife, uh, he left and he went back. That's uh, that's the West Coast, of course, what later, 400 years later, would become California. But you're reading, it seemed, in your book of the uh, of the goals, of the mentality of the East Coast colonialists, was much more associated with land. Um, you suggest that the colonists essentially stole the land from 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 the indigenous tribesmen. They they did it with legal means, but it was essentially a form of theft. Was it land, land hunger, the colonization of land that had originally been quote unquote settled by the indigenous people? Is that the real story of this period? It's a great question, and it's it's interesting um, to hear a, another take on it from another part of the world. And um, but yes, I think there's quite a bit of scholarship out there that at least um, the time I was looking closely at, um, there was a privatization of land in England and um, people feeling um, deprived of access to common land that had once been available. And there were also, um, you know, when I look at the settlers who are facing religious persecution, I think there was a sense of people seeking liberty, but not feeling that they truly had any sense of security until they were able to um, find land that they felt that they had a legal right to. And it's kind of the undercurrent of everything that happened in that time period. And I can look at Roger Williams. So um, my book details the murder and uh, the manhunt for the murders before um, Penamonyink was the murder victim actually died, he was able to make a dying declaration to Roger Williams, the settler of um, the founder of uh, present day Providence, Rhode Island. And Roger Williams was someone who went to great lengths to try and behave equitably in his dealings with indigenous people and um, his fellow settlers, colonists and we see him write deed after deed reworking deeds running new deeds by indigenous people that he is having these dealings with and it, at least the more i studied it the more i looked at what was unfolding it just felt like one example after another of using english law that was absolutely of course completely foreign and using it as a tool to whether unwittingly or not. But at the end of the day, when you see how the colonists had undermined and taken land from, from indigenous peoples in a very deliberate way, and certainly through acts of war, the expansion westward, and then ultimately north as well, there's no question that a land grab was at foot. And their very motivation was land-based. And you see quotes from settlers at the time writing letters back to England, please come over, we do have land. You can snap up plots, two, three, find as many as you like, land is here. And there certainly seems to have been a deep motivation. But, um, one of the things I like about the book is, 
you're ambivalent, I think, morally about the foundations of America. You don't fall into either traps. The nationalists who see it as the, the story of the Mayflower and the settling of New England as the beginnings of freedom, the beginnings of the greatest country on earth and all the rest of that fiction. And on the other hand, you don't see it in purely dark terms. I think your treatment of Elizabeth, of course, uh, who uh, Lawrence uh, Elizabeth I of England, who Lawrence Bergeron also talks about, is very interesting. You say that the, the settlers on the East Coast um, used Elizabeth I's thinking about her ideological thinking about fighting in the Low Countries for the benefit of colonialists themselves, which essentially gave the colonists the right to determine their own legal history and establish trial by jury. How central do you see Queen Elizabeth and her thinking then, even if it was rather inadvertent thinking, in the foundations of um, democracy and trial by jury in America? Right. It's a great question. I think it was likely inadvertent on her part, but um, she is a remarkable person, a figure to study. Um, I think she, in that moment, was likely laying at the foundation for an argument on just war. Um, what happened is that those very words, words that touched very deeply on the idea of natural law and human rights and rights that supersede the rule of any one person, even a queen, um, became a foundation for asking for more. And again, when you're in a position of facing tyranny, and I look at someone like um, Alexei Navalny in Russia, and I see someone who can be thrown away for life. And what is to stop a tyrant from doing that? And it, it's probably not going to be a bureaucratic judge in a small municipal court somewhere. It might be 12 of your neighbors who under threat are willing to stand up and say, no, not on my watch. And I think there are natural laws that have their foundation. Um, certainly Queen Elizabeth touched on them, but she was quoting um, kind of uh, scholars from um, our, our kind of uh, classicist. Um, if we look back at uh, Roman- Classicist in particular, I think, the Roman scholar. So, um, um, Toby, very briefly, tell us the story of the trial itself. How revolutionary was it and how revolutionary was it seen as by its participants? Well, it was a remarkable moment and it was an unlikely moment. And to understand how unlikely it was is to understand the horrors of the Pequot War, which was unfolding as the backdrop to this trial. So you have an indigenous murder victim at a time when settlers are... Yeah, and here we have some image of, of, of the war itself, obviously extremely pr propagandistic. Uh, for people interested in the war, they need to go to Wikipedia or other historical sources. But go on, uh, Toby. Sure. And that image, I think, was of the Powhatan uprising, which was in the Virginia colonies. But that was on the mind of the leaders in the settlements at that time, that was what they feared. An uprising that Roger Williams had actually mediated against a year earlier in 1637, um, trying to undo 
um, a possible alliance between Wampanoag and Narragansett, who could form an alliance and work against the English settlers. And those tribes were historically um, not ones to ally together, but that was the concern. And then at the moment of the trial, you have this murder during a moment that's a tinderbox waiting to be reignited with further battles. And the battles, as we've already discussed, were as violent as could be imagined. And um, so the stakes were very high. The population of Plymouth Colony in 1638 was about 550 people. Um, it was relatively isolated. We had Miles Standish um, handling defense, and he took that role very seriously, um, practicing drilling his troops um, on mountain. Uh, what, what, what role did uh, uh, Arthur Peach's master, uh, the Plymouth Colony governor, Edward Winslow, play in, in the trial? Right. He, he was certainly there. He didn't play such a direct role. The governor of Plymouth Colony at the time was um, Thomas Prince, and he took kind of more of a fact-finding role at trial as, as judge. But what was very challenging was simply finding jurors to serve on the trial. And if you think about the small population, um, women were not considered eligible for jury service at the time. 17% um, of the population were made up of indentured servants who were likewise ineligible, um, children, sick, elderly, also likewise ineligible. So you had relatively few people. And I assumed that the jurors, when I began looking into this, were made up of, of farmers. And I was wondering what mindset a farmer in 1638 might bring to a jury during a time of war. And there were certainly, it's quoted in the record, rumblings of by the rude and ignorant sort, um, that there should be no justice given where the murder victim was an indigenous person. And I thought to myself, would the jurors think likewise? And who were these jurors and what were they thinking? And it was a little hard to figure out what they were thinking because we weren't there, of course, and there's stamp record. But what I could see were their probate records, which contained their libraries. and. What they were reading was astounding, and it put me to shame. Um, I, I think of myself as pretty well read and um, enjoying educating myself, and um, but what they were reading was incredible. Um, these were people who took pride in scholarship and learning different languages, reading um, any book they could get their hands on in the language. So, so it was an important legal, an important moment in not only perhaps in U.S. legal history, but in global legal history. Here we have, for people watching, um, the original uh, 1623 order mandating the use of uh, jury trials in, in in the Plymouth Colony. Uh, one of the criticisms of of your book in the Wall Street Journal was that you and I'm quoting the reviewer, you can't resist the trope of the doomed and vanishing Indian that you wrote of the Narragansetts, the countdown to the death and destruction of their people began. Uh, here we have an image of, um, uh, of, of one of their homes and, and, and some images of the peoples. Um, the idea in the Wall Street Journal, I thought the review was very unfair, uh, these people today have federal are a federal a federally recognized tribe who have regained a portion of their traditional lands, but this was in many ways a holocaust, wasn't it, Toby? 
Uh, there's no justice here. There may be some justice in terms of the creation of a trial by jury, but this is a profound stain on the history of America, alongside slavery, the great shame of, of American history. Is that fair? It's absolutely beyond fair. Um, the great horror that we hold as Americans is the genocide, the attempted um, genocide that happened during the Pequot War and the larger atrocities that happened to indigenous peoples during the, um, this uh, period in colonial history. And in 1638, the very year of this trial, um, the slave trade in New England began. And I think it's very easy sometimes for different regions in our country to point fingers at different areas and say, you know, this, this history is unique to this region. And it's not. Um, these horrors happened from coast to coast, and they've touched so many countless people. And it's just the work of all of us as citizens. You know, we think about our different rights as citizens, but we also have duties that are implicit that come along with those rights. And one of those duties as a citizen is to understand our history and why groups of people have been disenfranchised and hurt. And um, I appreciate your reading of my book and the review because um, I think most people who will look at my book will see that at the end of the day, if my only goal, if no other goal existed, was to do justice to showing um, what had been, for me, a, a bit of a hidden history about this Pequot War and this period specifically, and trying to shed light on exactly the role of um, indigenous people during this time. And um, so I think there was a sentence that um, I had written it with a very different intention. And I, I hope others are able to read it within the Well, context. everyone, I think, should read it. And, and, and finally, um, you do end, in spite of the darkness in the book, in spite of the murder and the racism, and, and as you say, a, a genocide against the indigenous peoples of this, of this uh, continent, um, you do say that this trial by jury is really the foundation of American liberty. There was a, uh, some research that came out today, um, Toby, suggesting that America is slipping as a democratic country. Um, how essential do you think is the trial by jury, very briefly, in American democracy? How, how important is it? Uh, and are, are, are you in any way worried by uh, its future, about its future? Well, the one thing I can say as an, an American, I have zero worry on that front. Um, our democracy is tested. And when I see people um, gathering in the streets and getting their message out about injustices that they are suffering, I feel inspired by hope. And when I see young people today gathering and this awakening of our history, I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think it means our democracy is alive and well, and our voting system is working beautifully and it's tested and it's tested it again and again. But when I see a boisterous, chaotic, loud patchwork of vibrant, beautiful voices out there, I am reassured about our democracy. Um, the one thing I would not want to see um, are, injustices that I see unfolding now in, in Russia and other parts of the world. And trust me, we have injustices galore to tackle here. And I'm, I'm delighted that people are 
having conversations that are important to have. And I do think that at the end of the day, if all else is forsaken, the jury trial is that one structure that helps support our democracy and acts as a safeguard against injustice because it's very easy for someone to go out on the street and say Black Lives Matter and for an officer to arrest that person. And it's very easy um, for other injustices to unfold that are simply um, down to someone's opinion about what should be allowed to say that someone might be able to say or not. But at the end of the day, if you can have a jury trial, you have 12 of your peers who can be the ultimate arbiter of justice. Well, Toby Pearl, uh, you, you mentioned mm -hmm. injustices galore. Uh, your book, Terror to the Wicked, America's First Trial by Jury that Ended a War and Helped Form a Nation is uh, full of injustice. But out of all that, injustice seems to come an element or a foundational element of justice, American justice, the right to trial, which will even apply to uh, the... Uh, the 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 young men who committed these terrible crimes in the last uh, week in America, good book, very readable. I think it's particularly good for for children who want to understand the beginnings of American history. Recommended. It. It's just out. Uh, Toby, you are in um, South Florida at the moment in these strange times. I'm guessing South Florida is always pretty strange, but anyway, particularly strange because of COVID. Uh, what else, in addition to your new book, would you suggest people read? Ah, okay, that's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. Um, during the pandemic, I've enjoyed so many fabulous books. Um, one in particular is um, Ghost of the Innocent Man. This is by Benjamin Ratchlin. And um, I thought this was a fabulous book. We hear so much about injustice and what can be done and false imprisonment and um, this book is highly readable, and it also offers an incredible blueprint of uh, one system that would provide a safeguard. So I think it's um, a fascinating, well-written um, read. And um, well, Toby Pearl, um, you got another book? One quickly, yeah. one more book. Uh, Dead Mountain, the untold true story of the Dyatlov Pass incident. So if you're looking for a puzzler, a mental puzzler, this was um, by Donnie Eicher, and it's uh, fabulous as well. Well, thank you so much, um, Toby Pearl. Uh, terror to the Wicked, congratulations on the book. Keep well, and we will see you once again on the show uh, to discuss both justice and injustice. Thank you so much. I hope so. Thank you so much, Andrew. An absolute pleasure.